turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. We have been uh, indeed telling you about a new sermon series that begins today. This is a very familiar passage of Scripture to you. I hope it's a familiar passage of uh, Scripture to you. And it's always good to go back and look at basics, even things that are right underneath our uh, nose, to go back and look at those basics. And we start today, and a number of different uh, men will be coming in and preaching uh, this really wonderful passage of Scripture throughout this summer. Let's pray together before we look, look at God's Word. Lord, we do thank you for your Word. We thank you for the privilege of coming. We pray that you would send your Spirit We pray that you would bless those who are on the road this holiday weekend, bless our times with a family, bless those who are uh, here this morning, who are from out of town, who are visiting with family members. And we pray again as we go to your word, Lord, we pray that you would send your spirit, send your spirit with power and teach us, transform us, as we begin a new series on a, a very uh, well-known passage of Scripture. But Lord, I pray that you would teach us new things, new perspectives, new ways, new truths from this wonderful passage that you have given us through your great gift, uh, the Holy Spirit working through uh, your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Exodus chapter 20 verses 1 through 3. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. One of my uh, favorite writers, not, not just southern writers, but favorite writers is a Flannery O'Connor. Maybe you've heard of her. And she once said this about us, about Southerners. She said, we live in the Christ-haunted South. The Christ-haunted South. Now, she didn't mean that Jesus is a ghost. Uh, She didn't mean that everybody in the South is a Christian. But what she did mean is for Southerners... We go outside and we get in our cars and we look around and we've got signs and symbols and public expressions of Christianity everywhere, don't we? You you can't miss it. It's everywhere. And you especially notice it um, when, uh, when you meet somebody who's from another part of the country or somebody who's from another part of the world. Many of you know Derek Thomas. He came from Northern Ireland to be a professor at the seminary. And I remember when he first got here, I was having breakfast with Derek, and we were at Primo's, and he leaned over to me with this thick accent and said, Brad, there's people everywhere in this restaurant praying over their meals. There's people in this restaurant at breakfast having Bible studies. I've never seen that before. If you did that in Britain, you'd be highly suspicious and they'd probably call someone in to to haul you off. This is strange. We're used to that stuff. We're used to seeing people pray in public. 
We're used to seeing people have Bible studies in, in restaurants. It's common. Um, I won't tell you about Derek's first experience at a football game. It was in Starkville. I'll tell you later about that. That's another sermon. Um, but it was fascinating, fascinating, fascinating. Uh, we have churches on every corner, and many of those churches are full. People go to church around here. We have crosses by the side of the road. Three crosses. You've seen them. We have crosses marking where people have been in auto accidents with flowers around the crosses. We have manger scenes around uh, the Christmas time of year. We We have yard signs. We have billboards with Christian themes. We have public prayers before football games. We have lots of sermons on the radio. And of course, we have, don't we? We have the Ten Commandments. You can't go down any road very long in this area and you're going to see somewhere in some kind of public place the Ten Commandments. Maybe in front of someone's house or at a park Um, at a church, on a classroom wall. Uh, I remember when I was um, at the the University of Texas, on the the Capitol grounds of the University of Texas, there is a a six-foot-tall monument with the Ten Commandments uh, uh, engraven in this monument. But what's really fascinating is that monument was financed by Cecil B. DeMille. You know who that guy? The, the director of the Ten Commandments paid for this monument, the Ten Commandments, right there on the Capitol grounds. But every once in a while, as I mentioned earlier, this, this ubiquitous symbol that we see everywhere, do we understand it? Do we really understand it? Let's go back to the Ten Commandments and make sure we understand what's right under our noses. We might even be taking it for granted. Let's begin today at the outset, the beginning of this series, by uh, looking at two things. Uh, what, What is the role? Let's ask this question. What's the role of the Ten Commandments in our lives? Secondly, the goal of the Ten Commandments in our lives. What's its role? Role, goal. Now, those of you who love outlines, that's easy to uh, remember. How are we supposed to read and understand the Ten Commandments? What is their role in our lives? Let me say, first of all, the wrong way. The, the wrong way is the way of the legalist. Do you know what a legalist is? Um, I'm sure you have a, some kind of a, a vision of, of what a legalist is. A legalist is someone who rests on his own righteousness for his relationships. A legalist is someone who rests on his own righteousness for his relationships. Relationship with God and relationship with other people. I've said the right words. I've been baptized. I go to church. I'm a decent person. I have very few vices and I compare very favorably to everybody else. And I expect the same from others. 
you want my friendship and my love, I expect you to perform in a certain way. I expect you to live up to the standards that I have for you so that I can accept you. We've all been on both sides of this. If you don't live up to those standards, I'm gone. I'll, work, I'll try somebody else. Now, don't misunderstand me. Sometimes we have to do hard things. When somebody is, is about to go over a, an emotional or spiritual cliff, we jump in the car and we uh, grab, grab the wheel. The most, the most vivid example of this kind of person, obviously, is the Pharisee, right? The Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke chapter 18. The Pharisee who stands up in public as the smoke goes up and the smell of a burning sacrifice is in the air. The smell of sacrifice and death is in the air and he stands up in public and says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. God, I thank you that I'm not like that guy. I pray and I tithe and I attend and I do and I do and I do and I earn and I perform. God, I thank you that I'm not like others. You know, the irony in all of this is sometimes we even have the same mentality, don't, don't we, toward God. God, you perform in a certain way and I'll love you. God, you perform in a certain way and I'll follow you. If you don't, I'm on to another God. That's not the way to read the Ten Commandments. Earning and meriting and achieving and performing and expecting that of those around us. The second way, the, the right way, it's, it's our title today, the Ten Commandments for Christians and for Hebrews are love in action. Obedience is love in action. It's what love looks like in this world. J.I. Packer, many of you know, know of J.I. Packer, a very well-known book, Knowing God and Others, says the, the law is love's eyes. The law is love's eyes. And it's vitally important here at the outset of this series that we remember the context in which this law is given. The context in which these instructions are given. The context, and please get this, the context in which God comes down to Sinai and gives His law to His people is grace. The context is redemption. The context is rescue. The context is freedom from slavery. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, who redeemed you, who bought you, who rescued you, who freed you. Now live this way. Live this way before me and live this way with one another. This is love in action. This is what it looks like. We said from the New Testament earlier in the service, 1 John chapter 5, by this we know we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. God loved them enough and He loves us enough to give us these instructions, these commandments, these ways. 
traditionally, and I think rightly, we've understood the role of the Ten Commandments in, in three ways. First of all, the Ten Commandments are a mirror. We look into the Ten Commandments, and what do we see? I have tried to obey the Ten Commandments. I've tried to be obedient. <laughs> I've tried to fulfill them the way I should, you might have said to yourself. And I, I'm not encouraged by the Ten Commandments. I'm discouraged by the Ten Commandments, in fact. When you look into this, you know what? The Ten Commandments are the most honest mirror that you will ever look into because you will see your real reflection. And it's not pretty. You're a sinner. The Ten Commandments will be honest with you about that. They will show you an honest reflection of who you really are. We don't expect mirrors to, to wash our faces, but they do reveal what's on our faces. Paul says in Romans 3.24, By the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. The Ten Commandments are like, first of all, a mirror. God, God loves us enough to show us our sin to smash our righteousness, to call us to repent of our righteousness. Secondly, the, the Ten Commandments are also like uh, a fence. God loves us enough. God loves us enough to protect us. He loves us enough to show us how we will, to protect us from hurting ourselves and from hurting others. Don't make idols in your lives. Respect your, your mother and father. Don't commit adultery. Don't lie. Don't steal. You'll destroy yourself in the process. And, and, and don't we see, we, we don't, again, don't have to look very far to see the devastating effects of people ignoring the protection that the Ten Commandments give us. And yet people ignore that. You know the old illustration of the children in the schoolyard who are right up against the building with no fence. They put a fence in by the road and the kids are everywhere. It's a restriction that brings freedom. It's an obedience that turns us loose. It's the right restriction. And finally, the, the Ten Commandments are like a, a, a map. They show us how to love God very specifically. They very specifically show us how to love God and how to love one another. I'm going to go ahead and say this. The only time in my entire life that I've heard my wife, I'm just going to say it, we're all friends here. Uh, the only time in my entire life I've heard my wife say a bad word was when we were trying to drive in Boston, Massachusetts. Now, has anybody ever tried to drive? And, you know, my dad's from there. And he said, you know how they laid out the roads? They, they grabbed a, a piece of paper and crinkled it up and threw it down. And there's the roads in Boston. They make no sense. It can't be done. And there we were, right? The first time we went and we were in the airport and we got out and we said, oh, we can find our way. We're, you know, we, we were lost. And, you know, the name of a road keeps going and then it ends and it starts across town over here. It makes no sense. 
I'll just say it. <laughs> Living life without this map of the Ten Commandments is like trying to drive in Boston. It can't be done. Oh, it can be, but you know the effects. They're devastating. It's a map. It shows us the way. Uh, Psalm 119, uh, the entire psalm, focusing on the law of God, the instruction of God. Open my eyes, Lord, that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. That's the role. That's the role. So what is the goal? What's the goal of the Ten Commandments? The Ten Commandments are a mirror, a fence, a map. They are love in action. It's what, our, it, it, it's what our lives ought to look like, how our lives ought to be lived. It's what love looks like. But the Ten Commandments, God, through the Ten Commandments, are very aware that every human being, every human being, without exception, today, in the past, and in the future, is hardwired to worship. Even people that deny that I worship anything do. And they often worship themselves. Or they worship their children. <laughs> or they worship their spouse. Or they worship whatever. Every human being worships. And if we don't get this right... Right at the outset, we can't keep any of the other Ten Commandments. Might as well not try. We won't even understand them if we don't get worship straight. We're made to worship. When Moses delayed on Mount Sinai to come down, the people couldn't stand it. And what did they do? Aaron, make us some gods so we can worship. We need to worship. He makes a golden calf. Acts 17, Paul walks into Athens. What does he find? Everywhere. Altars. There's even an altar. There, everywhere you look, there's an altar. There's worshiping going on everywhere. There's even an altar that had been built to an unknown God. Why is it that stories and myths bubble up in cultures all around the world about supernatural beings. You see it in the, the, the classic myths because we're made to worship. Why is it that so many people are attracted to Islam and to Hinduism and to Buddhism because we're made to worship? Why is it that cults, and we Americans have been very good at inventing. We've invented all kinds of cults, particularly in the 19th century. We have invi we've invented one cult after another. There are hundreds of cults in the United States because we're made to worship. You know, there's over, these are just the ones that are, that are chronicled that we know about. There are over 15,000 religious organizations in America. We're made... To worship. Um, in his um, excellent, and I was glad to see right across the street at Bar Barnes and Noble, there's a whole stack of them over there. I'm not trying to sell books for them, but 
uh, there's a brand new book by Ross Douthit, and it's called Bad Religion, How We Became a Nation of Heretics. Listen to what he says. America's problem isn't too much religion or too little religion. It's bad religion. The slow motion collapse of traditional Christianity and the rise of a a variety of destructive pseudo-Christianities in its place. The United States remains a deeply religious country. And most Americans are still drawing, in some sense, from the Christian well. But a growing number are inventing their own versions of what Christianity means. As a result, the Jesus of the New Testament has been replaced with a more congenial figure, a choose-your-own Jesus, who better fits with our preconceptions about what a Savior should be and shouldn't be. For example, he gives several examples. Dan Brown's Jesus, the Jesus of the Da Vinci Code, the Jesus, Dan Brown's Jesus, And he continues to write about his Jesus, is a man, just a mere man, who married Mary Magdalene, had children, and has a nice home in the Galilean suburbs. Joel Osteen's Jesus is determined that you will be happy, healthy, and rich. Elizabeth Gilbert's Jesus, eat, pray, love. Elizabeth Gilbert's Jesus of the book and film, Eat, Pray, Love, that Jesus wants to show you, wants to show every one of you that you have within you a divine spark. You are God. And your goal in life, you're just, Jesus is no different from you. He has a divine spark. You have a divine spark. Elizabeth Gilbert left her husband, divorced him and left her husband and went around the world to find this divine spark and claims to have eventually found it. And her husband went after her and she said, no, I divorce you, I'll have nothing to do, I'm going off to find my divine spark. And these folks I'm mentioning are popular. Hey, this is the same divine spark that Kevin Costner found when he went off dancing with wolves. This is the same divine spark that the the Jedi find in outer space. We are made to worship, and we're going to worship something or someone. It might be inside, the God within. It might be outside. It might be a person. But the Ten Commandments, very practically and realistically, right at the outset, are saying, what are you worshiping? Whom are you worshiping? The problem with, with us, and we're all, we all do this, even when we're even when we're converted, even when we join churches, even when we get involved in church as, as Christians, we tend on a regular basis to bring our old gods with us into the church. We have the work God, the good looks God, the power God, the control God, the money God, the intellect God, the per- per- perfection and performance God. You just fill it in. You know your own God better than anybody else. You want to know how you can find out what your God is? 
How do you find out what your, your God is? Think about what it is that you fear the most. What, it is, what is it that you fear the most, that you're most afraid of? Trace that fear to its source and you will find your God. So the Bible reminds us over and over, fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. What is it that you're afraid of? What is it that makes you insecure? What is it that you fear? Trace it to its source. You might very well find a God there. And it might not be the God of the Bible. The goal of the Ten Commandments is to make sure at the outset that we're worshiping the God of the Bible. And that we know that every other God, every other God will will break your heart. Uh, George MacDonald once said, The theme of hell is, I am my own. The theme of hell is, I am my own. And again, there's no use talking about the Lord's Day and honoring your father and mother and adultery and stealing and lying if we're not worshiping the right God. What does Jesus say? Uh, Luke 10, 25, And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said, What is written in the law? How do you read it? He, the lawyer, answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Obedience is love in action, first toward God and then toward others. Is this overwhelming? Remember, we look into the mirror of the Ten Commandments and first of all, we should be overwhelmed. We should be uh, con- convicted. We, we see failure and difficulty and it's very hard to, to live up to these things. But I promise you, if you look closely... If you look closely, and we'll talk more about this throughout this series, if you look closely, you'll see Jesus. You'll see a Jesus that keeps this law perfectly throughout his life for you. You'll see Jesus who suffers the penalty for breaking the law, for our having broken the law in our place, who suffered the punishment. Let me wrap this up this way. And I have, uh, I did this the other night at a, um, a commencement address, and that was only the second time, I think. Um, but I have a letter I want to read to you. Um, I'll have to say that it's one of the more meaningful letters I've ever received. I received it two years ago, and by the way, I asked him, his name is Dustin Flansburg. You don't know him, but I asked for his permission to read this to you. And I received this letter two years ago, and it's written from a soldier on the front lines in Afghanistan. A young man who had seen people die. A young man who had, a very young man, I think he was 21 at the time. I thought this would be appropriate for a Memorial Day weekend, but it's more, even more it's appropriate for how do we get a grasp on what this applying the Ten Commandments looks like. 
So I asked him if I could read this. I won't read the whole thing. But pray for Dustin, if you think about him. Still over there. But in many ways, this letter summarizes what we're wrestling with here. Obedience, love in action, worship. What comes first? How do we live in a messy world? Listen to what he says. Mr. Mercer, I've been having some concerns lately. And by the way, he knows about me because he served alongside, he's one of my son's buddies. My son was also a paratrooper and they were serving together and this is how he knows me. And he wrote, writes me this. I'm having some concerns lately and I know that you're a minister so that I was, hope, I would, I was hoping that you could help put some things in perspective for me. Harry and I, Harry's my son, Harry and I were talking tonight and it came up that, that we're saved. We are saved and not everyone in the platoon is. And we would feel horrible if something would happen to one of them knowing that they weren't saved. But my issue is that sometimes I just feel so far away from God here. We don't see our chaplain much. And we rarely get to go to services. I pray constantly for our safety, normally several times during each mission. Even just driving down a road that is normally littered with IEDs inspires me to pray constantly. But I consistently wonder if it's enough. I mean, we're all by nature sinners, and I get that. But being a soldier seems so much more difficult. Sometimes we have so much hate in our hearts for those we are fighting. And even the locals, because we feel like we're here trying to help them and they just don't even care about their own futures. So every day more soldiers are killed for a people that don't even appreciate us being here. And I tend to blame them for our sacrifices. You can imagine, being in the infantry, there's a lot of sinning going on, and I fall into sin. And it makes me wonder if I still have my ticket to heaven, or if it can be revoked. I know what I was taught, that we're saved by grace, but if you keep on sinning, and don't take immediate action to correct it, does it condemn you? I don't know. But when you're always in danger, when you're always in danger, you just can't help but have doubts about whether you're going to be okay when your time comes. Wow. How do you answer that? Um, As you might imagine, I wrestled and prayed. (laughs) Let me give you a little bit of my response and I'll close with this. Great honesty and great questions. We're all, let me say, first of all, we've, you're all, we're all in some kind of war. Paul tells us we're all experiencing spiritual warfare. But there's a poignancy uh, and a realism to Dustin's letter. Here's my response. Jesus Christ has forgiven each and every one of your sins. Past, present, and future. That's what it means to be saved by grace alone. You can never lose your salvation. Your ticket to heaven was handed to you by Jesus Christ from the cross. 
was purchased with his blood. It is one ticket that can never be revoked. Do Christians still sin? Yes. Do Christians struggle and often make wrong choices? Yes. But if you have trusted in Christ alone for your salvation, he lives in you. And he's working in you, whether you always feel him working or not. He's growing you and changing you. You are becoming more like Jesus over time. That's his promise. Salvation is by grace alone, but you're born again. And new hearts show themselves in new lives and new actions. Growth is often slow, but it's still growth. Most importantly, please remember that no one ever experienced more hate than Jesus No one ever experienced a more painful death than Jesus. He bore the sins of the world. And yet he loved and died for those who hated him. And he loves us. I'll close with this. You're in a hard place, but God has called you to be salt and light. He has you there to be an ambassador for his son, Jesus Christ. Sometimes he calls the ones he loves the most, the ones who are most dear to him, to go through the most difficult situations and circumstances. He did that with his own son. Be salt and light. He will never leave you or forsake you. That's true. That's true. It's true for all of us. Let's pray.